0: Chapter Two of the Statement of Stella Mabelly by F. Anstey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two The day arrived on which I was to enter upon my new life, and during the tedious cross country journey from my Hampshire home to the little village near the border of Kent and Surrey that was my destination, I had ample time for misgivings. Should I find Evelyn Heseltine the same as she was four years ago? Would she be quite unspoilt by wealth quite unaffected by the relations of patroness and dependent that were now to exist between us true i could detect no shade of patronage in her letter but she might betray it in her manner notwithstanding she had arranged to meet me at the station and any doubts i had were dispelled the moment i had alighted on the Winstone platform and saw her coming eagerly towards me i can see her still tall and slender in the fawn-coloured serge, pale pink blouse, and the small sailor hat which were being worn that season, her soft hazel eyes shining with pleasure and welcome, her cheeks flushed with a delicate rose and her bright hair slightly ruffled by the May breeze. Yes, she was unchanged, except that her former air of diffidence and timidity had been replaced by the ease and self-possession which a few years' experience of the world will give to the most unassuming. Even before she spoke my name with glad recognition and our hands met, I knew that she loved me as dearly as ever, and the joy and relief I felt almost prevented me from speaking. We were soon seated in the carriage with the pair of smart ponies which Evelyn drove herself, and as she had told the groom to follow behind with the luggage cart, we were able to talk freely. "'It's so delightful to have you here, Stella,' she said as soon as the ponies required less of her attention. "'And you're so exactly what I hoped you would be, only even more. Oh, "'But I forgot, you always hated to be told about your looks, didn't you?' "'Did I?' I said. "'At all events, I'm glad you approve of me.' And if we must talk about one another's appearance, you're looking wonderfully well, Evelyn. Far stronger than you ever promised to be. I was afraid from Mrs. Chichester's letter that you were still delicate. Oh, I feel perfectly well just now, she answered. There was nothing seriously the matter with me. Only the doctor said I had a weak heart. I suppose I outgrew my strength at school. At all events, they said I ought to live abroad for a time and avoid worry and excitement. I should have come home long ago, only I liked the life in Italy so, and no one can accuse existence here of being dangerously exciting. I am only afraid you will find it dull. I protested with perfect sincerity that I should be quite contented if I never saw a strange face, and that I wanted no society but hers. Oh, it's not quite so bad as that, she exclaimed, laughing. My aunt, Mrs. Maitland, is living at Tanstead with us. We must have a chaperone of some sort, and of course there are people about who seem pleasant and friendly, and we shall have to see something of them. And the country is perfectly lovely. You and I will ride and drive every day when it's fine, and if we have to stay indoors we shall find plenty of things to do, music and books and work. You must try not to be bored while you're with me, though I'm afraid I shan't keep you very long.' Oh, "'If it depends on me,' I said, "'I'm not at all likely to wish to leave you. "'Why do you think I should?' "'Oh, because,' she replied, oh, "'because of course I shall have to give you up to somebody "'sooner or later, Stella. "'You're much too beautiful not to be fallen in love with. "'Perhaps even now there's someone who... "'You won't mind telling me if there is, "'and then when the time does come I shall feel more prepared.' "'There's nobody,' I said.' I have had one or two offers of marriage, but I never cared enough for any man yet to give up my life to him, and I don't believe I ever shall. Your heart will be touched some day, said Evelyn. Then you'll speak differently. I doubt it, I replied. I don't think my heart is capable of that kind of sentiment. Some women are born with no vocation for marriage, and I believe I'm one of them. And really, I added, If we are to be separated by one of us marrying, I am hardly the most likely person to be chosen. Indeed you are wrong, Stella, if you mean that it is I, said Evelyn. I made up my mind before I came home, when we were in Italy, that I would never think of marrying unless I was sure. Oh, of what? I never can be perfectly certain of now. But how silly of us to be anticipating parting when we have only just met. It seems so wonderful our coming together like this, Stella. It was the merest accident that I told dear old Mrs Chichester about my wanting to find somebody about my own age to come and live with me. I hardly expected she'd know of anyone. And if I had, I never dreamed for a moment that you, of all people in the world, would have been obliged to try to earn my own living, I said, as she left the sentence uncompleted. I thought it unlikely enough once, but my father lost most of his money and my stepmother made me so miserable at home, I had no choice. Oh, you poor Stella, exclaimed Evelyn tenderly. What a trial it must have been for you. But you don't mind now you have come to me, do you? It isn't as if you were with strangers. Tanstead is to be your real home now, as long as ever you care to make it so. And my heart grew lighter and lighter as we drove on through the pretty Surrey landscape, under the horse chestnut trees with their tossing creamy plumes, past cottage gardens and orchards where the fruit trees spread their branches laden with rose-flushed snow against the pure blue of the sky, and the air was sweet with hawthorn and the fragrant gums of pines and larches. Presently we turned off the road, through a gateway and under an ivy-covered arch, after which I saw my future home for the first time. Tanstead House was a delightful old Tudor, or Caroline Mansion, I forget which, with barge-boarded gables and herringbone brickwork filling up the spaces of the half-timbered upper storey, which projected and was supported by carved corbels. It was not large, even with the additions that had been built some time in this century. I had a glimpse as I entered of long, low-ceilinged rooms with spacious latticed windows, an impression of old-world potpourri mingled with the delicate scent of azaleas and the freshness of garden flowers, and then Evelyn took me up at once to a pretty chintz-hung bedroom opposite her own. ''This is to be your room, Stella,'' she said. ''I do so hope you like it. I want you so much to feel comfortable and at home here and she left me to rest after the journey, with an affectionate embrace and repeated assurances of her delight in having me with her. After she'd gone I went to the window and stood looking out on the velvet lawn below, with the fine old cedar ringed by a circular seat of faded blue. From the tiled roof over my head came the sleepy crooning and roo-coo-hooing of pigeons, In the garden, beyond the lawn, a whiplash fountain pattered and tinkled musically as the breeze drove its spray this way and that. It was all so restful and sweet, such a haven of refuge for my wounded and troubled mind. It filled me with a great peace, a soothing sense of security. Here at least the black moods of depression and sullenness would have no power over me. No hateful suspicions could find lodgment, now I had shaken off the demons which had made my life a burden. With such a home and such a friend, how could even I be anything but happy?' I should have been insensible indeed if I had been unmoved by this, and if my heart had not been lifted up just then by a passion of love and gratitude towards her to whom I owed so much more than I could ever repay. I would, I vowed to myself, be worthy of her goodness. By no act or word of mine would I ever grieve that gentle nature.' no friend Evelyn might have chosen could be more loyal and devoted than I would prove myself. Not a difficult resolve to make or keep for one of ordinary good feeling, it would be thought. And yet I was destined to find it hard enough, as those who have sufficient patience to follow my unhappy story will discover before very long. Sometimes I wonder whether by any effort of mine I could have overcome my nature altogether for long, and how far our thoughts and feelings really are within our own control, as we are so often told they are. I only know that these good intentions of mine were absolutely sincere at the time, and indeed I honestly believe that I carried them out as faithfully as was possible to such a temperament as mine. Perhaps, if things had only happened differently, I should never have... Oh, but it is idle to speculate on what might have been, and I must return to actual facts. When I went downstairs again, I was presented to Mrs. Maitland, the aunt of whom Evelyn had spoken. She was a widow of about fifty... Pleasant to look upon with a manner which, though kindly and amiable, was somewhat fussy and over-anxious, and, as I soon discovered, without an idea that was not absolutely safe and commonplace. I might have expected that she would look upon me as a rival and treat me with a certain reserve, if not with suppressed hostility, but her greeting was as cordial as it was obviously sincere.' So nice for dear Evelyn to have someone of her own age about her, my dear Miss Maberly," she remarked. I am sure I often felt while we were abroad together what a poor companion I was, for I am too old and stupid to take the interest she does in things. In my day, young girls weren't as highly educated as they are now, and I never was clever. And now we're at Tanstead, there's so much that I have to see to that my time is almost entirely taken up but it won't be dull for her any longer now you have come. Oh, Evelyn, my love, you may say what you like. I know very well you did find it dull. It was only natural you should, and it's a great comfort to my mind to think it won't be so any longer. I shall be able to attend to everything properly without feeling uncomfortable about leaving you alone. And the good-natured gentlewoman proved perfectly content to act as a kind of superior housekeeper when her services were not needed as chaperone, so that for the earlier part of the day at all events, Evelyn and I were left to the undisturbed enjoyment of each other's society. In spite of what I've previously said about my school days, I'm not sure that those first few weeks at Tansted were not after all the most uninterruptedly happy period of my life. Evelyn grew dearer to me, and the sympathy and understanding between us more perfect with every hour we spent together. Even if I had never known her before, I couldn't have been so constantly with her without learning to love her now, and I was proud and glad to feel that she was as attached to me as I to her. The days passed quietly and uneventfully enough, but they never seemed long or monotonous. Evelyn was occupied with various charitable undertakings in the village, in which I rendered her what assistance I could. We took up some of our former studies again, and read and practised and sketched with a pleasant sense of our own virtue. There were delightful rides together through leafy lanes and over wild heaths and commons, and long intimate talks over old school memories, as we sat under the trees on the lawn of an afternoon, or pace the garden paths in the growing dusk. My spirits recovered their tone in this wholesome, peaceful atmosphere. I should have been perfectly happy with Evelyn as my sole companion, but of course we could not remain in absolute seclusion and my former morbid dislike to meeting people seemed to have almost disappeared, as I found when I went with Evelyn to local gatherings that I encountered none of the slights and coldnesses which had made me shrink from such ordeals in my own set at home. All this I owed to Evelyn. She had made life seem fair and hopeful once more, and it would never be clouded again while she was with me, as of course she always would be now. Whether we lived on together all the years to come in this sweet old country home, or spent part of the time travelling abroad, was perfectly indifferent to me, so long as I had her by my side. At times I fancied that she looked more fragile and delicate than when I first arrived, and seemed less and less inclined for exertion, but the excessive heat of that year's June was quite enough to account for it, and I felt no real uneasiness about her health, especially as she always declared she was perfectly well. And as it happened, when the day came which first shook my blind confidence in the future and revealed the fool's paradise in which I was living, the incident, if I may call so slight a thing an incident, that brought this about had nothing to do with the state of Evelyn's health. It happened late one afternoon. We were to have gone to a garden party at the hall, But Evelyn had not felt equal to it at the last moment, and as I was not disposed to shelter myself under her aunt's too fluttering wing, I preferred to stay at home too, and leave Mrs Maitland to go alone and make our excuses. We were still sitting on the lawn, though the first dinner bell had rung, when the carriage returned with Mrs Maitland, who joined us with a little air of suppressed importance. Such a pleasant party, Evelyn, she began, though almost too hot to move about. The Holliers were so disappointed not to see you. They sent the kindest messages. And really, I'm quite glad I went, for I've got a piece of news that I think you'll be pleased to hear. Whom do you think I met there? You'll never guess. That nice Mr. Dallas we saw so much of at Florence. And just fancy... He has a place only a few miles from here, Laleham Court. Did you know that? Mr. Dallas, exclaimed Evelyn, with more animation than she'd shown all day. No, Aunt Lucy, I'd no idea of it. I never thought of him somehow as having any fixed home. How strange that you should have met him again like this. "'My dear, we live in a small world after all,' said Mrs. Maitland, "'with an evident sense of her own aphoristic originality. "'I quite expected we should come across him again sooner or later. "'And he is most anxious to meet you again, my dear. "'I thought I might tell him you would be charmed to see him "'and he's going to ride over some afternoon soon. "'Oh, I hope I did right, Evelyn. "'You will be glad to see him, won't you?' "'Very.' "'said Evelyn softly. "'I liked Mr. Dallas. "'Oh, I hope he will come. "'I want you to meet him, Stella,' she added, turning to me. "'I know you have rather a contempt for young men in general, "'but I think you will admit that he is an exception.' She spoke naturally enough, but there was a tender light in her eyes "'and a slight increase of colour in her cheeks that made my heart sink.' Why was she so anxious to prejudice me in this man's favour? Why did she look at me in that wistful, almost pleading way, unless she wished to prepare me for something that might, that she hoped would, happen? Evelyn went indoors shortly after, and Mrs Maitland and I were left together, when the suspicions I had already formed were more than confirmed. Has dear Evelyn ever happened to mention this Mr Dallas to you? she asked. No. Oh, how very curious. I should have thought... uh, But she is strangely reserved about some things. And really, I think she seemed pleased at the idea of meeting him, don't you? Uh, Strictly between ourselves, Miss Maberly, I have a strong impression indeed when we were at florence i felt almost sure that on both sides uh, oh, but though he was so much with us there was hardly time for it to develop into uh, still now he is actually in the same neighborhood it does seem quite possible that oh but of course it's too soon to speak as yet it would be such a good thing he's a great favorite of mine most charming and very well off I hear Leyland Court is quite one of the show places here. Everyone seems to think so much of him too. Exactly the kind of man I should wish to see dearest Evelyn married to. <laughs> These incoherent confidences were poured out on our way to the house, and I was soon able to escape to my room and think over all that they pretended. I felt almost stunned at first. It may seem strange but the possibility of evelyn's marrying some day had never struck me as anything but remote since we had been associated i had suggested it the first afternoon while we were driving from the station and she had repudiated any intention of marriage with a sincerity which would have reassured me subsequently had it occurred to me to feel any serious alarm but it did not Partly because Evelyn's nature seemed too spiritual somehow to be associated with earthly passion. Partly because she had wound herself so closely round my heart that I instinctively shrank from the mere thought of losing her in such a way. Now for the first time I had to face the fact that this was not only merely possible, but probable. I remember now that even when she declared that she had decided never to marry, she had done so with a reservation to which her aunt had just given me the clue. Evidently this Mr. Dallas had made no ordinary impression upon Evelyn, though for some reason he had gone away without declaring himself. She had believed him indifferent, and that they were unlikely to meet again, but she had always had the faint hope that she might be mistaken, and this was the contingency which might make her reconsider her resolve to remain unmarried. How I constructed all this out of so little I can hardly say, but I knew it, as certainly as if she had told me so in words, and foresaw the almost inevitable future. This man would appear sooner or later, the sight of Evelyn would revive his interest in her, if it had ever faded, their intimacy would be taken up again at the stage at which it had been interrupted, and step by step, he would usurp my place in Evelyn's heart. I should have no right to complain. It would only be natural that she should put her lover before her friend. No doubt she would assure me that even marriage would make no difference in her affection for me, that next to her husband I should always be dearest in the world to her. But even if this were true, it would not satisfy me. I could not be content now with any place but the first and I already hated this unknown Prince Charming who was coming to thrust me into the background. I felt a dull resentment against Evelyn too, which was all the deeper, because at the bottom of my heart I knew it was unreasonable. She might, I thought, have been more open with me. I had believed there were no secrets between us, and all the time she'd kept this passage in her life to herself. I had a right to feel hurt and angry, but I would not let her see how sorely I was wounded. I would not condescend to a word of reproach or any sign that I foresaw how speedily I should be abandoned. If she could be reserved, I would be still more so. And besides, it was only prudent to steel my heart against her for the future, so as to be better able to bear to do without her when the time came. For if I was to be less than all in all to her, I was determined to be nothing. So, from that evening, I began almost insensibly to alter in my manner towards Evelyn, and to put a certain distance between us. I said and did nothing which could give her an excuse to protest or ask for explanations. I kept up all the forms of our ordinary intercourse, but still, by slight, almost imperceptible gradations, I withdrew from our former comradeship. So sensitive a nature as hers could not help being affected by this, and I could see that she was vaguely uneasy and distressed by the consciousness of some unseen barrier between us. But I found a sombre satisfaction in the ingenuity with which I baffled all her advances, while still leaving her unable to determine precisely where or if she'd been repelled. It is strange how soon such a mental attitude as mine becomes rigid— until it is only to be relaxed by some extraordinary effort of will. I nursed my secret grievance against Evelyn until it was an absorbing and imperative necessity to find fresh food for it. And I was impatient for this friend of hers to appear and prove to me that my jealousy was only too well justified. I had not to wait long. Mr. Dallas rode over to call one afternoon that week and I made my first acquaintance with the man who was to separate me from the only friend I had in the world. As he came towards us across the lawn, my first impression was of a tall, well-built figure, a dark, smooth-shaven face, neither plain nor handsome, but with a look of undeniable distinction on it. When he glanced at me as Evelyn introduced him, I saw that his eyes were grey and calmly observant. He had an easy, quiet manner and a remarkably pleasant voice. He made no secret of his pleasure at seeing Evelyn again, and she was equally frank in her welcome of him. They were soon deep in their Italian reminiscences, and as I was necessarily unable to take more than a listener's part in the conversation, I was the better able to watch them both. But whether my presence acted as a restraint upon them or whether as yet they had not gone beyond the stage of friendship, I could detect nothing, on his part or hers, that absolutely bore out my suspicions. He talked well, with an occasional touch of humour, and everything he said indicated considerable knowledge and culture, without a trace of priggishness or showing off. He was certainly as different as possible from the rather heavy-witted young sportsman whose conversation I had found so wearisome, and I couldn't help reluctantly admitting to myself that, dislike him as I might, there was something strangely attractive in his personality. Occasionally courtesy obliged him to include me in the conversation or explain some allusion for my benefit, but something I did not know what made me unusually tongue-tied and stupid that afternoon, and I was provoked to feel how unfavourably I must be impressing him. Not that it mattered, of course. To him, if indeed he gave me a thought, I was merely the salaried companion who was not expected to be brilliant or original. Why should I care about the opinion of a man to whom I was bound to be indifferent? and who was so evidently here for the sole sake of recommending himself to Evelyn. She irritated me by the serenity with which she received all his attentions, as if she imagined I did not know how triumphant she felt at seeing him return to her, as if she could really be so insensible as she seemed to his personal charm. It would have galled me even more, I dare say, if I could have surprised her in some self-betraying look or intonation, but my resentment against her had gained too strong a hold to make me care whether I was consistent or not, so long as I found fresh grievances to keep it alive. He went away at last, and as I heard the sound of his horse's hoofs departing down the drive, the garden seemed to me to have grown dreary and deserted, and Mrs. Maitland's chatter more unendurable than ever. Well, Stella? "'said Evelyn softly, looking at me with an expectant appeal in her eyes. "'I knew she wished to hear me praise this lover of hers, "'and I would rather have died just then. "'Well, Evelyn,' I returned. "'What do you think of him?' "'Of Mr. Dallas? "'What should I think, except that he is the most irresistibly charming "'and accomplished and generally delightful person I ever met outside a novel?' "'Her face clouded.' If you talk in that ironical tone about him, she said, I shall begin to think you dislike him. And yet I don't know why you should. Why should you care whether I like him or dislike him, my dear? I replied. What possible difference can it make to you or to anyone else? I looked her in the face as I spoke and saw that for the first time she hesitated and seemed confused. None, perhaps, she said. And yet I shall be disappointed if you don't, Stella, but I believe you will when you come to know him better. I shall have plenty of time to study his many excellencies, I said, if his visits are all as long as this one. I began to think he never would go. I didn't think he stayed at all too long, said Evelyn. Then of course, my dear Evelyn, he didn't, I retorted as I rose. "'But all the same he has contrived to give me a headache, "'and I must go indoors and lie down "'if I am to get rid of it by dinner-time. "'When I got upstairs, I did not lie down, "'though my plea of a headache was not altogether a subterfuge. "'I paced the room, "'trying to realise what I actually felt towards this man. "'Why was it that the chief bitterness in my heart "'seemed concentrated upon Evelyn, "'when I had at least equal reason to hate him?' And suddenly the humiliating reason forced itself upon me, obstinately as I sought to keep it back. I was no longer jealous of Hugh Dallas, I was jealous of Evelyn. And as I realised all that this implied, I hid my burning face in my hands for very shame, though there was none to see. End of chapter 2